war, power, and hydroelectricity. Well, one of the effects was that there'd been very little new development in Canada in terms of hydroelectricity for about a decade when the war hit. An interview with Matthew Evenden about his new book on the mobilization of hydroelectric power in Canada during the Second World War. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 52 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. What fuels war? The total war of the Second World War placed enormous demands on the resources and the environment of Canada. Manufacturing equipment for the war and harvesting natural resources for production were some of the most substantial contributions Canadians made to the war effort on the home front. And most of the electricity that powered that effort came from falling water. As Matthew Evenden writes in his new book, Allied Power, Mobilizing Hydroelectricity During Canada's Second World War, Canada's war economy was mobilized on the banks of rivers as well as people. During the course of the Second World War, the federal government, the provinces, and private corporations coordinated in the expansion of Canada's hydroelectric capacity. By the end of the war, Canada was a hydroelectricity superpower. To learn more about the role of energy and environment in Canada's Second World War, I spoke with Matthew about his new book. My name is Matthew Evenden, and I'm an associate professor of geography at the University of British Columbia and also the Associate Dean of Research and uh, Graduate Studies uh, in the Faculty of Arts. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. Uh, we're talking about your most recent book, Allied Power, Mobilizing Hydroelectricity During Canada's Second World War, uh, published by the University of Toronto Press. Uh, I thought I'd just start with the cover. Um, it is, uh, as you describe it in the book, an arresting image uh, for audio listeners, uh, this is great radio, uh, it's, a, it's a hand uh, with water cascading th- between the fingers uh, with uh, uh, some hydroelectric towers uh, in the lower right-hand corner of the image. I thought maybe if you could start by telling listeners a little bit about uh, where this image came from and, and why you uh, selected it uh, to discuss and include in this book. Sure. I mean, this may be one of those cases where I wouldn't mind if people uh, judged the book by its cover because the the image is, is really striking. Uh, it was produced by Marion Dale Scott, who was uh, a very important modernist artist in Montreal in the interwar period and in the, in the postwar period too. And she had taken a pretty strong stand in the early part of the war, refusing to take up any commissions for war art or uh, propaganda pieces. And so it's a bit of an anomaly that uh, she did, in the end, agree for the Wartime Information Board to prepare artwork for a poster which was promoting the major contributions of hydroelectric power to the wartime cause. And this was part of a, a series of images that were produced. Uh, many wartime uh, pieces of propaganda art used the device of a hand to signal strength or determination. What is interesting about this image, apart from the background that uh, uh, Marion Dale Scott was had pacifist inclinations and mm-hmm. uh, was a strong feminist and, and produced an image with a strikingly masculine hand in it, something which provoked a response from her colleague Peggy Nichol, a feminist artist, to evince surprise at uh, her choice of this subject matter. Uh, but what's interesting about it too is but if you look hard at the image, it's unlike some of those other 
propaganda art pieces where the hand really does signal strength or determination because the river surging around and through the hand isn't ultimately captured by the hand. So it's possible, I think, to read this image uh, in another way and to ask whether or not we can also identify here a, a subtle critique of the war and the inability of humans to control the rest of nature to seize its power. So although on the surface it, it certainly promotes that message, it contains the grounds, I think, for uh, questioning whether or not there isn't a critique embedded in this message too. It's a fascinating image. I had seen it before. I'd come across it before uh, in an exercise reviewing propaganda posters in Canada during the Second World War, but I had no idea about the background and the oddity of this pacifist producing one of the most striking propaganda images um, in terms of Canada's promotion of its natural resources, which is where the poster comes from. It focuses on Canada's development of hydroelectric power as a contribution to the war effort, which, of course, is the, the subject of this book. Um, so, in 1939, when the war broke out, what was the landscape of hydroelectric power generation like in Canada, or, or, or electric power generation in general? Well, uh, it was uneven. Uh, in central Canada, there was significant hydroelectric development. Much of this had been developed in the 1920s, with a, a limited expansion uh, in the 1930s, mainly in Quebec. But Quebec and Ontario together accounted for, you know, a little over two-thirds of the total hydroelectric power generation in all of Canada. In the rest of the country, um, Manitoba and British Columbia were significant hydropower producers, Alberta somewhat less so, but almost no hydropower was produced in Saskatchewan and uh, only a, a modest amount in the maritime provinces in the north. So. If you think about it in landscape terms, there was a, a kind of giant mountain in central Canada where the, the region from uh, uh, Lake Ontario stretching uh, down the St. Lawrence was one of the most intensively developed hydro regions in the world, let alone Canada or North America. And then a few pockets of intensive hydro development in Western Canada. Um, so there was a, a significant base of uh, hydroelectric power in Canada, was, which was going to be important uh, for the war, but it was regionally concentrated. And what does this say about energy consumption or electricity consumption in Canada uh, going into the war? Um, it, it seems to be the experience of electricity across the country would be quite different. I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, even when we lumped together Quebec and Ontario and central Canada as having a, a commonly developed you know, hydroelectric infrastructure. In fact, they were quite different in terms of the pattern of use and uh, interconnection and consumption. In Quebec, most of the hydropower was geared towards large industry. So mm -hmm. the consumer use of uh, electricity was pretty modest outside of cities like Montreal or Trois-Rivières. Uh, in Ontario, because of strong public policy objectives to um, expand the electrified universe in the early 20th century under uh, the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario. That mm -hmm. Because of that, there was a different pattern of consumption, more rural electrification, more domestic use of electricity than in any part of Canada. But certainly the contrast with Quebec was striking. So what people used electricity for uh, um, varied between regions. Um, the, the electricity that was available for large industry 
varied between regions. And you've alluded to this a little bit, but um, in the decade immediately prior to the outbreak of the war, the country had gone into an economic slump um, during the Great Depression. Uh, what effect did this have on the context of hydropower generation and consumption going into the war? Well, one of the effects was that there had been very little new development in Canada in terms of hydroelectricity for about a decade when the war hit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big surge in hydro development before that is in, during the 1920s. So many of these big projects came to completion at the end of the 20s. There were plans for other projects. And then, as you say, the stock market crash, the wider effects of the politics of the Depression, meant that in many regional markets, the demand for electricity fell way off. Mm-hmm. And as a result, private utilities, uh, public utilities, became risk-averse and quite conservative in terms of future planning. They wanted to just sell the electricity they were already producing, let alone planning for uh, massive boosts in consumption. That was almost unimaginable in the midst of the, the 1930s depression. So that's beginning to change by the end of the 30s in some local markets, particularly in some parts of Quebec. But uh, the at the outbreak of the war, the immediate background was limited to no development across the country for a decade, so using an older infrastructure with limits and (laughs) and utilities trying to build demand to use the electricity they were already producing. So the margins were going to be very thin in 1939 for taking on any new large blocks of electricity demand, which of course would happen at the beginning of the war. So Canada was not in a great place (laughs) for meeting the immediate and soaring demands of wartime, and that produced all kinds of political and economic pressures. And did this prior experience to the, during the Depression shape some of the wartime planning? Were uh, private utilities or even the public utility in Ontario uh, hesitant about expanding during the war? There's no question, particularly in the early part of the war, uh, utilities were you know, wondering who would pick up the cost if they um, massively expanded and found themselves with excess capacity at the end of the war. Um, uh, Alcan, the aluminum producer in Quebec, which was also a, a major hydroelectric producer for their smelting activities, was was in this position and felt concerned that if they increased their capacity uh, at the end of the war, they'd be left with uh, a much greater supply of hydropower than they could possibly use. That turned out to be uh, not the case and, and mm-hmm. uh, but, but in all the dealings they had with the Canadian government, with foreign governments, they tried to um, build in language in the, their contracts to protect themselves against that uh, eventuality. It's something that I think from a contemporary perspective is, is somewhat surprising or was unexpected when I read the book that there would ever have been a period where electricity consumption had gone into decline, that expansion wasn't always the... Uh, assumed position for uh, an energy policy in the country. Yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't say necessarily that it had declined so much as as there was a fallback of a period of years and, and utilities were concerned to, to, you know, bring up the demand as close to they could, as they could to the available generation capacity, because at that point they were uh, making a good profit. But taking big risks, building infrastructure with no apparent demand, mm-hmm. um, that seemed like a crazy strategy. 
Uh, I mean, if you look at the contemporary United States in the 30s, that's in a way what mm -hmm. the federal administration was doing under Roosevelt in building large projects in the Tennessee Valley and in the Columbia Valley. was, And no one was quite sure what industries would necessarily uh, take up all this new electricity that was going to become available. And in a sense, the Second World War was an accidental and major producer of new demand that uh, made these uh, projects uh, very useful and, and immediately utilized, but that wasn't because of planning. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction, I guess, between Canada and the United States during the Great Depression in terms of policy responses to the Depression, the sort of lack of large federal public uh, works projects for hydroelectricity um, in Canada versus the United States. It's a, a basic and important contrast. So whereas uh, the U.S. was building capacity through the 30s, particularly after the mid-30s. Uh, in Canada, um, not only was there a limited engagement in these issues by the federal government, which incidentally didn't really have jurisdiction for pursuing large hydro projects, but provincial governments were equally uh, concerned not to, to jump in and, and um, spend public money on these major works initiatives, at least in terms of hydro. The government in Ontario in the 30s was uh, very strong in this regard, uh, blocking any proposals for, say, uh, a major initiative like the St. Lawrence Seaway in these years mm -hmm. because of the perception that this would be all you know, unnecessary, costly electricity that wouldn't be used. And I guess this becomes important sure. during the war, but sure. what option did the government of Ontario take in terms of meeting its electricity demands uh, if the, rather than developing new uh, hydroelectric facilities? Yeah, well, the, the public system in Ontario, and this precedes the 30s, um, grew in part by signing contracts with private hydroelectric firms in Quebec. Mm -hmm. So there were major import contracts with Quebec firms. And uh, this was controversial, controversial in Ontario, to be sure. And uh, at various stages, the government of Ontario tried to cancel these contracts, rescale them, ship some of the power south to the United States. Uh, in each instance, uh, failing in its broader objectives, but in the meantime, doing nothing to increase its own generating capacity in the province of Ontario. So the, the issue of contracts and electricity imports is, is complicated, to be sure, but it, it meant uh, a, basically a, a decade of delay in the case of Ontario, so that when the, when the war hit, uh, issues of new generation were particularly serious in Ontario. So by September 1939, the war breaks out, and the federal government assumes its emergency powers. What measures did it take then to address uh, electricity demand needs for wartime production uh, and purposes, and how did it go about mobilizing hydroelectricity? Well, initially there was a, a, a slow engagement of uh, economic planning and uh, particularly in respect to energy issues. It was really after the fall of France that uh, the seriousness of the situation and the, the major responsibility uh, falling on Canada within the, the wider Allied cause uh, came home. Mm -hmm. And it was in, in 1940 that um, munitions, Department of Munitions of, so, and Supply was established and, and different what were called economic controls were placed on 
um, different commodities or economic sectors. So, for example, there was a controller of timber, a controller of steel, a controller of oil, and uh, importantly, a controller of, of electricity. Mm-hmm. And and this was a new role for the federal government because it had not taken on this kind of broader national regulatory role previously. Uh, jurisdiction over rivers and electricity um, was split, but it mainly fell within the provincial sphere. And so it was a, a grand new adventure for uh, the Federal Wartime Administration to try and figure out, look, how do we mobilize the Canadian economy and provide it with the energy necessary to uh, build uh, war products, to, to ship commodities to allies and so forth. I mean, the electricity supply in Canada in 1939 depended almost wholly on hydroelectricity, 98% of Canada's electricity came from hydro sources. There were regionally important sites of you know, coal burning and thermal production, particularly in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan and, and the Maritime Provinces, but the bulk of electricity generation came from hydro. So the government really, in identifying a, a need for electricity control, was really circling hydroelectric control. Hmm. And within that, giving a particular regional emphasis to central Canada and some parts of the West where that intervention could, could matter. So this is where Herbert Symington comes into the picture then. That's right. So Herbert Symington was appointed as the power controller. Um, so that person in charge of electricity from its development to its consumption who could intervene to reset prices if necessary to compel private corporations to do things like build a dam and so forth. He was uh, a lawyer in Montreal, the in-house counsel for um, uh, Royal Securities. Hmm. Uh, but he had wide uh, a national experience. He, you know, grown up in Ontario, schooled in Ontario, went to law school at Osgoode Hall and then set up his practice in, in Winnipeg uh, earlier in the century and became a very important corporate lawyer in Winnipeg and then was recruited to Montreal um, uh, later after having de- developed his, his national reputation. And he was someone who had expertise in transportation issues and um, river development issues and, and utilities, and particularly given his role with Royal Securities, which in, invested and guided investors uh, in the field of uh, you know, timber companies, pulp and paper, uh, and a lot of utilities and, and power companies. He knew many of the kind of regulatory issues that were involved. He was also a close um, friend of C.D. Howe, uh, a business associate from before uh, Mm -hmm. Howe's entrance into politics. So um, there were strong grounds there for a a, a good connection and and Howe trusted Symington and thought he could succeed in his role. Now, I I had expected to encounter... um, more instances of friction, I guess, between the provinces and the federal power controller, because here is the federal government, uh, to some degree, assuming uh, constitutional responsibilities of the provinces during a time of war. But did you find much conflict between Symington and the and the provinces? Not much. I mean, he was he was um, skillful and diplomatic in dealing with the provinces. He knew he, he could potentially be stepping on provincial to- toes at any, at any turn. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think that possibility was reduced somewhat given the scope of his responsibility. So he was not handed the power to set up a bunch of crown corporations to develop hydropower. That might have set yeah. off fireworks in the provinces. Um, and he, he determined, given that he didn't have a staff really to help him regulate this field, that he would really need to engage um, provincial officials in Quebec and Ontario to essentially uh, support him supplying intelligence and to help him regulate the field. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was very much a, a kind of cooperative federalism <laughs> that, that he was that he was modeling. He did have conflicts, nevertheless, with particularly the government of Ontario, and he butted heads before the war with uh, Premier Hepburn, who he had mm -hmm. low, low opinion of, and Hepburn in turn. Um, Saw, saw Symington as a kind of representative of what he called the wolves of Montreal at, at one point in the late 30s. Um, Symington also had conflict at the end of the war with the uh, uh, government of, of British Columbia and uh, BC Electric because of his perception that there had been real stalling in the province to get, get ahead and build new and needed infrastructure. And he was, he was irritated. But these were the kind of small dust-ups that you'd come across in there their correspondence, but from a public point of view, um, these kinds of conflicts were beneath the surface. Now, I guess I wondered if the federal role in in terms of power control and even the uh, oil control uh, during the war ends up serving as a precursor uh, or informs subsequent federal national energy policies in the years after the war. I think there is definitely a, a post-war legacy to these activities, but I think rather than necessarily informing immediate post-war federal national policies, mm. at least with respect to hydro, it's more that uh, what happened in the war was a, a modeling of what could happen if governments um, intervened and helped to shape the development path in the hydroelectric field. So that by the end of the war, as the control powers were being relaxed and as um, some of the you know, federal interventions in the, the wartime economy were, were being relaxed, provincial governments began to assume new authorities than had been the case from before the war. Certainly, you know, in the province of Ontario, this had already been established. It was a hydroelectric power commission, but Hydro Quebec was founded in 1944. Mm -hmm. A long-term uh, populist uh, program in Quebec to assume uh, ownership of the Montreal Light Heat and Power Company, but nevertheless, it happens in the war. Mm -hmm. It happens after uh, certain changes have occurred in the in the provincial economy in different jurisdictions across the country. Different governments begin to try and assume new powers, new authorities. In British Columbia, uh, a power commission is established after the war, after a contentious debate as to whether or not the province or uh, a, a collaborative of municipal governments should take over the uh, monopoly uh, power uh, firm in, in Vancouver and Victoria, uh, the BC Electric. Mm -hmm. So the, there are tensions around uh, the kind of collective uh, role of citizens, the role of the state at the end of the war, which I think cannot be disconnected from what has been rehearsed and demonstrated during the war around the possibilities of state intervention. Now, the, the federal government in Canada 
obviously played a role in shaping hydropower, but it seemed that the diplomatic relationship between Canada and the United States was quite significant in terms of the projects that were pursued during the war. How important was the U.S. in terms of influencing Canadian power policy? Yeah, the U.S. was, was hugely important in influencing power policy. Um, that's not immediately evident at the beginning of the war, but uh, it was diplomatic negotiations were still occurring at the very beginning of the war as the province of Ontario began to realize that they needed to develop more hydro within provincial boundaries. And um, for that to occur on an international river like uh, uh, the St. Lawrence <laughs> and uh, then issues of, of allowable water taking, say, from Niagara were going to be uh, involved. Um, diplomatic discussions had to be undertaken to figure out how that was going to work. And a new St. Lawrence agreement was drawn up, which then provided the, the basic framework for um, the St. Lawrence Seaway development in the 50s, which would follow. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was a major piece of it. Another major piece was around uh, U.S. demand for aluminum. Uh, aluminum is a highly energy-intensive uh, production model. Um, and Canadian uh, production was well established and moving forward when the United States realized in 1940, 1941 that it was going to not be able to meet its uh, aircraft production targets with domestic aluminum supplies. So mm -hmm. major contracts were signed with Alcan. This had an impact on the scale of development uh, of hydro development in eastern Quebec. Um, it impacted other discussions because the United States wanted to know whether Canada would, as a result, meet other American demands around electricity export. So Canada continued to meet uh, energy needs at uh, Messina, New York, where uh, Alcoa produced aluminum, even at times of major electricity shortage in Canada. Hmm. And um, for any kind of boundary river, issues came up. And that an example of that is in uh, British Columbia, where uh, the West Kootenai Power and Light Company wanted to increase its hydro production on the Kootenai River to supply chemical and um, uh, mineral smelt chemical production and mineral smelting at, at Trail, mm -hmm. British Columbia, and required you know the permission of the United States and hearings through the International Joint Commission, a, a body established to look after binational issues on. Um, water uh, on lakes and rivers that cross the Canada-U.S. boundary. So it, it came up at so many different points, the Canada-U.S. relationship. But the, the big picture is that in, uh, after the entrance of the United States into the war, the close wartime alliance that Canada uh, experienced with the United States also had all kinds of ramifications in terms of the economy mm -hmm. and with that hydroelectric development. It's a really interesting addition to the story of Canada's relationship with the United States during the Second World War to think about the geographic component of the degree to which the two countries were connected by flows of water and the ability to harness energy from water that, to some extent, set the framework for a diplomatic relationship throughout the war. Yeah, it was, it was woven into all the uh, uh, economic agreements and, and plans. I mean, the High Park Declaration, famously... Um, tied together the Canadian U.S. economies during the war. Mm -hmm. one, one little recognized element of that uh, declaration was that there was 
aluminum specifically uh, highlighted in the agreement that was inserted by the United States to ensure that they had sufficient supplies. So if you think about aluminum as frozen kilowatts, and some suggested it should be thought of in the war, mm -hmm. it's really a discussion not just about aluminum and a metal, but it was about available hydropower. So that's the next question I want to ask is about aluminum. And in a sense, this is, I guess, I think common in environmental histories of war to sort of follow the war material down its commodity chain from aircraft, uh, which play a much more significant role in the Second World War than in the First World War, the lightweight metal required to manufacture it in the high uh, vo uh, volumes of, of hydroelectric power to create it. Was the power policy in Canada an aluminum policy? I think you could argue that, and it certainly was um, through the middle years of the war in central Canada. And by that, I mean that aluminum held priority. Mm -hmm. So if there was a, a shortage at any point, power had to be di diverted first to the Saguenay Valley, where most of Canadian aluminum was being smelted. Mm -hmm. um, the developments which were going on in Quebec were all to support uh, aluminum production. Various measures were being imposed in terms of conservation uh, in 1942, for example, to try and tide over uh, uh, Alcan in, in terms of getting the electricity that it needed and dampening down commercial and urban demand in all the interconnected markets of Quebec and Ontario. This isn't to say that there weren't other important wartime demands. Of course, other kinds of factories and uh, commodities were being produced, many of them highly energy intensive. Uh, also, domestic demand continued to grow through the war. All the kinds of electricity needs arising from urban transportation, streetcars and so forth, all of it was growing during the war as the economy rebounded and, and grew from the, the Depression. But I think aluminum was such a priority issue for the federal government to meet its commitments to the Allies that it had a, a centrally important part in the power policy. You have to remember how significant aluminum was and, and how significant Canada's position was in the supply of aluminum. Mm. Britain had uh, smelters for aluminum in Scotland, but most of its aluminum had been imported before the war from Norway and France. Well, after the fall of France, after the fall of Norway, that, that stops. And uh, so the British government had anticipated this potential problem and it signed uh, uh, supply contracts with Alcan uh, right at the beginning of the war. So Alcan became essentially the primary supplier of aluminum for the British and the British Commonwealth more generally. It supplies over 90% of aluminum. So if you think about the Blitz, if you think about the air war, um, from a British and Allied perspective, Canada made a huge contribution in terms of the materials required to, to carry out those, those missions and those battles. And Canada, as I said earlier, was also supplying aluminum to the United States in, in major quantities. So uh, this key dimension of Canada's economic contribution was strongly tied to its, its, its hydro policy and, and hydro projects during the war. This is an interesting way that this book gets you to think about Canada's role in the Second World War differently. Um, I think uh, in most 
narratives of Canada in the Second World War, the contribution that Canada is cited uh, to, be, to have made to the Commonwealth is the, the British Commonwealth Air Training Program. Uh, but of course, the hydroelectricity and the aluminum production arguably plays an even more significant role in terms of uh, the Allied uh, air, air war. Um, so it seemed to me uh, over the course of this book, which spans a national history here, that there's tremendous regional variation in terms of experience of uh, the power policy, the federal power policy across the country. Residents of southern Ontario would have been subject to conservation measures uh, to reduce their electricity conservation as well as uh, Quebec. Uh, but in the on the coasts, there would have been uh, blackouts to avoid bombing uh, to for security purposes. But then in Winnipeg, uh, you show that there were neither of these measures. So Winnipeg was the bright light in the center of Canada right. during the Second World War. Um, how important is geography to this to understanding Canada's national experience in the Second World War from the perspective of hydroelectricity? Well, geography uh, is a central dimension of this. I mean, you can think about geography in many different ways here, spatially in terms of the environmental background. Uh, in terms of the, the physical geography, of course, the Canadian Shield was the, the principal site of, of hydro development in, in central Canada. Um, mountainous terrains in, in the west were important. You can't really build successful hydro projects on sandy ground or in prairie <laughs> landscapes. So the physical background, of course, was, was crucial. But added to that, it's all the, the technology and economic infrastructure that's uh, uh, developed in those kinds of contexts. And in central Canada, for a variety of reasons, there was a much more advanced development of interconnection systems of transmission networks so that Quebec and Ontario were in so many ways trading power back and forth mm. and linking different utilities and regional systems together so that when conservation measures were introduced, chiefly to try and dampen demand in, in southern Ontario, they had to be applied to both provinces where all large central systems were connected, mm. both for political reasons, because people had to have a sense that they weren't being singled out necessarily mm -hmm. and, and that both provinces were carrying the burden of this, but also because they were interconnected. And so reducing demand in, in one section of Southern Ontario would have positive effects on uh, parts of uh, interconnected regions in Eastern Ontario, which were in turn connected to uh, regions in Quebec through supply contracts and so on. So the, the geographical context of Technology was critical here too. Geography also plays a role, of course, in the urban-rural divide in Canada during the war with respect to electricity. I mean, rural electrification was uh, not well developed outside of Ontario. I mean, in Alberta during the war, something like five percent hmm. of rural households uh, had electricity. So, electricity was much more a much more urban phenomenon than we would certainly imagine today. And uh, so there was a strong rural-urban dimension to the experience and the use of electricity at this, <clears throat> this time. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I guess when you sort of light up Canada by hydroelectricity, you see a very different kind of country, one that is is quite disjointed from place to place, even in British Columbia, where there is some industrial capacity during the war, the interconnections are just physically uh, unfeasible. Uh, between the the Kootenays and the Lower Mainland, 
Yeah, I mean, in, in BC, there were two major regions where, where electricity was available and hydro powering it. One at the coast uh, in Vancouver, and most of that was supplied by s relatively small dams in the uh, regional hinterland. And then another major hub uh, in the, the, the south east of the province in the Kootenai Valley, where uh, Kaminko and, and allied with it, the West Kootenai Power and Light Company, had developed significant hydro since the late 19th century. But what separates those two hubs, of course, are several mountain ranges and major and difficult distances to transcend. So the first strategies employed in any of these kind of limited geographically circumscribed uh, hydro contexts was to kind of intensify the development opportunities at hand. But there wasn't a strategy pursued to build major transmission infrastructure, as had happened in uh, Quebec and Ontario and to a lesser extent in Alberta uh, where the construction costs were much lower. In, in BC that wasn't really a practical option. At the end of the war uh, the Vancouver region was tied into increased power supplies coming from the United States from the Bonham mm -hmm. Power Administration. That really saved Vancouver from uh, an ugly period of uh, very uncertain power supply. Mm -hmm. But uh, other other options were not feasible. And I guess in the the Alberta context, uh, you have a, a good regional case study there. Um, you you go to some extent to try and answer this question, I think, in the book. But um, was it necessary to turn Lake Minnewanka into a, a hydroelectric reservoir? Yeah. So the Alberta case is is interesting. Um, Calgary was supplied almost purely by hydroelectric power, but most of the rest of the province depended on coal burning in thermal plants. Mm -hmm. And when the war hit, a major explosives um, or a, a chemical plant, which would, was geared towards supplying nitrate for explosives production, was sited near Calgary. And part of that decision to site it there was that, you know, there, were, there was land available, housing available for workers, Natural gas from the Turner Valley was at hand, uh, railroad links, water from the Bow River. In terms of the production facility, everything was set. What wasn't set was electricity supply, and this was going to be an energy-intensive plant. And so the local utility, Calgary Power, used the war as a lever to uh, pursue an objective it had had for over a decade, which was to dam Lake Minnewanka, which is located right at the center of Banff, National Park. And this, of course, was a political hot potato. It had been, uh, this objective had been strongly rejected in the previous decades. And in, in part, the federal parks legislation had been rewritten to bar large industrial development projects such as this one from going forward. But Calgary Power managed to make the argument, and C.D. Howe in Ottawa certainly carried that argument within the federal war cabinet that this was a wartime necessity and a dam had to be built and there were no other quick options. There were other options but they would take a couple of years or um, there were difficulties supplying some of the turbine technology for thermal plants etc etc. There are a long list of excuses. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the opposition folded um, Reticence expressed by Prime Minister Mackenzie King, other federal 
cabinet members uh, went by the wayside and the, the dam went forward. Hmm. The, the strange thing was that <laughs> once this power was supplied, the need for this nitrate production from the plant near Calgary was effectively ruled out. Part of the reason why there was so much nitrate production cited in Canada at the beginning of the war was that the British were fairly certain that the Germans would bomb their uh, nitrate producing facilities in the UK. So this was a way to kind of backstop that production program. That didn't happen to the extent that was anticipated. So Canada's production was really just being added to that. And then the US entered the war and there was massive additional nitrate supply. So what happened at the end of the war was uh, a need to, unless they were going to shut this plant down, a need to figure out what they could use this nitrate for otherwise. And so for the most part, this plant that was planned for uh, supplying explosives came to be a fertilizer production plant. Right? So the nitrate was converted into commercial fertilizers. And the Canadian government subsidized fertilizer introduction to Canadian agriculture arising from sources like this one uh, in Calgary. So you could say that the dam was built really to supply fertilizer production by the end of the war. I mean, the, the Calgary system also supplied electricity to other regions of Alberta that experienced shortages at the end of the war, mm -hmm. particularly arising from shortages of coal, uh, which came about because of uh, labor uh, strife in the, the coal mining sector. So that power delivered its results, but not in the, uh, not according to the script that was written at the beginning of the war. So in each of the chapters, you move across the country and we see all of these, these quite variable experiences of hydroelectric power policy and change during the course of the war. Uh, why construct this as a national history? Why not focus just on central Canada, for example? What led you to, to write a, a history of Canada rather than just Ontario and Quebec? Well, I guess the, the simple answer to that would be that I didn't, didn't think I could really understand any of the regional stories alone. They were all in one way or another connected. And I, I mean, I'd first come across this federal power policy in the war when I was doing work in, in British Columbia. And it seemed strange and interventionist and completely out of the ordinary of what happened in the, in the peacetime. And then I did work with Chris Armstrong and Viv Nellis in Alberta, where I came across the story about Lake Minnewanka uh, in a preliminary way. And it just seemed to me very, I wonder what on earth was going on at the federal level that the government would be getting involved in all these different hydro projects. And, and given that Central Canada was so much more important in terms of total hydro production, I thought there was probably a an important story to tell there. So although I try and uh, bridge the uh, uh, gap between the national story and the regional or provincial story, I think it's it's basically impossible to understand one without the other. Mm -hmm. So the, the national story can't be written as a national story because there's too much internal variation across the country. But equally, you can't tell um, the story of one region and assume it, it has some uh, explanatory power for the country as a whole. It was it was a very mixed picture. So I've got a couple of uh, historiographical questions to to wrap up here. Uh, the first is about the environmental history of war, uh, which is a growing body of scholarship. Um, and here we have a case study uh, in Canada. 
Uh, so what does your study here of hydroelectricity add to uh, that literature on the environmental history of war? Well, I think the uh, important historiography on this topic of war and environment that's come out of the last 20 years now has in an initial phase focused at the, at the battlefront mm -hmm. and um, important questions about, you know, what is the environmental impact of, of warfare? What, what happens when different warfare technologies are unleashed on landscapes and human bodies? Those are all important, uh, necessary questions to ask. But I guess looking at that set of international questions, I was concerned to understand how Canada fit in um, to the war-environment relationship. It was obvious that Canada contributed to the war, so how did the war affect Canada? And in looking at the Canadian context, we get a better sense of how world war impacted diverse sites and places at a distance from the front of battle. So there are backward linkages that warfare produces, and those backward linkages can produce really uh, unintended strange outcomes at a distance. I mean, you, you can give us examples of this. The uh, unintended consequences of the reduction of North Atlantic uh, fishing during the war because of the threat of U-boat attacks in the North Atlantic. Well, this had a, a, had a measurable effect on cod stocks during the war that had, of course, then an impact on the intensity of the post-war fishery because of the lack of, of fishing uh, during the war years. Uh, it had a, a, an impact in other a distant landscapes. I mean, I, I, I think um, the example I've, I've addressed earlier in an essay on aluminum commodity change concludes with a, an image of uh, the remains of American fighter aircraft in Papua New Guinea. Mm. And a lot of this material was just, just kind of left because it was too expensive to remove. Uh, Judy Bennett, uh, Judy Bennett's book on war and environment in the, the South Pacific addresses that question more, more generally. But there were all kinds of environments and landscapes transformed during the war because of wartime needs, because of wartime mobilization that we need to understand, both in terms of uh, the immediate wartime context, but the, the frames, the legacies of, of the war moving forward as well. I tried to tally some of those up in my mind at the end of the book. Um, in terms of hydropower policy, what were the, the longest-lasting ecological effects? Was it uh, the Shipshaw project? Um, is it flooding uh, wildlife habitat? Or is it the fertilizer? Mm. Well, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think this may be another uh, contribution to the historiography insofar as my argument is that Hydro projects, individual hydro projects, of course, had specific environmental impacts, but there was nothing particularly unusual about those impacts during the war compared to pre- or, or post-war projects. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing about the war itself that produces a new ecology. Some have argued that there, there ought to be thought of uh, a specific wartime ecology. I don't think I'd agree with that. Um, but what we do see is a ramping up of a, a kind of development model. And so, while yes, we could highlight some specific environmental legacies arising out of the war, 
I, I would suggest that it's the, the economic development that occurs during the war, the kind of redrawing of the boundaries of, of how state intervention occurred to uh, uh, build new projects. The whole uh, uh, assumption that dams were a model for development, that dams could, could integrate an economy and power it forward, I think those really gain momentum during the war. And questions about the impacts of dams on um, human communities or mm -hmm. fisheries and so forth, that's, that's really swept aside in a, in a utilitarian discourse during the war. And it, it takes decades for challenges to that vision to really gain, gain hold in Canada and, and indeed internationally. So I think the, there is a major impact on um, the models of development, the thinking around uh, hydro and its, its place in society um, that transcends any specific environmental legacies of these wartime projects. And the, the other area where I see this book uh, adding uh, is in terms of energy history. Um, so in what ways do you see this case study of, of federal power policy shaping uh, broader uh, uh, elements of Canada's energy history? Well, I mean, I think um, one thing that has become obvious to me through the course of preparing this book is that uh, Canada is an international weirdo <laughs> <laughs> insofar as electricity is concerned. Very few other countries internationally have relied historically so heavily on hydroelectricity. And, and to this day, Canada remains a, a major producer of hydropower and more reliant on hydropower, particularly in some provinces like Quebec or British Columbia, than is the case in, in other Western states, to be sure. So um, one of the contributions is to identify how central one particular energy carrier, hydroelectricity, was to the whole infrastructure of energy production and use in this, in this country. Well, the book is uh, available now from University of Toronto Press. It's called Allied Power, Mobilizing Hydroelectricity During Canada's Second World War. Matthew, thanks so much for telling us uh, more about this uh, fascinating look into Canada uh, during the war uh, from a very different perspective. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Matthew Evenden and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and other podcast players, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast by leaving comments or writing a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. And you can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash nature's past. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past.